Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and it is my great honor and privilege today to have Paul Fry on the podcast. Uh, Paul was a professor of mine when I was in graduate school and is someone who has really um, been formative for me in my ways of thinking about poetry. And, and so for, for those reasons, he is someone that I, from the beginning of this podcast run, have been dreaming of having on. Um, I'll say a little bit more about what it was like to be Paul's student back in those days um, in, in just a moment. Let me tell you first that the poem that Paul has um, chosen to, to discuss with us today is William Wordsworth's poem, um, which we refer to by its first line, a, a slumber did my spirit seal. Um, that poem is um, often thought of as one of the so-called Lucy poems. Um, and we'll get into all of that, of course, um, as the conversation goes on. Um, Wordsworth is a poet who is, is important to me, was important to me. Um, Paul's formative in my way of thinking about Wordsworth and so I, when I asked him to come on the podcast, I, I, I said, let's do Wordsworth maybe. And I said, how about one of the Lucy poems? And, and we can, t you know, I think it'll be interesting to talk in a moment about uh, why this poem in particular seemed suitable for this occasion. But let me tell you first more about Paul Fry. He's the William Lamson Professor Emeritus of English at Yale University and the author of several books. Uh, the first of those called The Poet's Calling in the English Ode followed by The Reach of Criticism, Method, and Perception in Literary Theory, a book called William Empson, Prophet Against Sacrifice, and then a book that I remember as being important to me, in particular in the time when I was in Paul's class, a, a book called A Defense of Poetry, Essays on the Occasion of Writing. And that book you may remember as one that has come up in an earlier conversation that I had with another of Paul's students Eric Lindstrom. And actually, just as a brief aside, it occurs to me to note here that Paul Fry is the teacher of at least, I'm probably missing some of these, um, three guests on the podcast run. So Anahid Narcessian was a student of Paul's, Eric Lindstrom, and Jahan Ramazani also. Um, Paul was the editor of a critical edition of The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Coleridge's great ballad. Um, and then most recently, well, depending on how we categorize these things, but Paul wrote and, and published his Wordsworth book, Wordsworth and the Poetry of What We Are. I mean, Wordsworth is in the other books, uh, but, but here Wordsworth was central and that came out from Yale Studies in English in 2008. Uh, many of you might know Paul not from his books, but from his brilliant and accessible and so generous, um, these lectures he gave as a part of um, a course at Yale University on literary theory. Um, so if you simply Google Paul Fry Introduction to Literary Theory, you'll find it on the Open Yale website, a series of lectures that Paul gave on the history of literary theory that I have to say, though, though it wasn't a class, I mean, in fact, I did take that class as an undergraduate at Yale, but not from Paul, from someone else. And 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 without naming names, I'll just say I wish I'd taken it from Paul. <laughs> it, it made a lot more sense to me when I uh, when I listened to those lectures, and I've I've gone back to them over and over again over the years for my own teaching, 
my students, were they here right now and able to confirm this, would readily confirm that I'm frequently sending them to Paul's lectures on literary theory um, because he explains things so beautifully. Um, he's had such a distinguished career that I think it would be foolish for me to try to take measure of its full, full scope here, but I'll just say that as a scholar of poetry, of romanticism, of literary theory, he's made major contributions to the ways we have of thinking about literature. Paul was not himself a student at Yale, but he's clearly in some sense an heir of the rich history of romanticism and uh, Wordsworth studies at Yale. And perhaps we'll talk some about that critical tradition, that scholarly tradition here today. Um, like I said, I didn't find myself in his classroom until I was in graduate school, at which point, this is true for, for Yale English students, or, or at least was in my day, um, I had read most of Wordsworth more than once by the time I got to Paul's classroom. But, but it was in his classroom that I found in Wordsworth, and, and then it seemed really most everywhere I looked, something else, something both familiar and strange. Uh, Paul was helping me to see not exactly beneath, but prior to the meaning of poems, something else, something he's called the hum of literature, um, something he's also called the ostensive moment in, in literature, something that um, Eric Lindstrom and I talked about with, with respect to Schuyler's poem, February. And that something is, is both simpler, radically simpler, and more thrilling than what we thought we knew about poetry or what we thought we knew about Wordsworth or about romanticism or, in the case of Wordsworth in particular, for instance, what we thought we knew about those moments in Wordsworth's prelude, his, his um, long autobiographical um, epic poem that uh, Wordsworth himself calls spots of time, you know, how to think about those moments. Paul forever changed my way of thinking of those moments. Um, I think some of much of that will come up today. Um, but I just want to conclude by saying that one of the things I took away from Paul's um, seminars, and I took a seminar on Wordsworth and Coleridge with him, and then one the following semester on Byron, Shelley, and Keats, and then the year after that, I was a teaching fellow for, for Paul in a lecture course on romantic poetry. Um, one of the things I took away from those various classrooms was a new way of thinking about what poetry might have in particular to do with death or with um, the state of not being alive, which both precedes and follows the state of being alive, and maybe is something we carry along with us even while we're alive. Um, and I've returned to those lessons when death has encroached on my life, as it does on every life. And, um, and I've been grateful in those moments for having been Paul's student, and I'm especially grateful to have him here today. Paul Fry, welcome to my podcast of all Thank things. You, How are you? How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for your eloquent uh, and undeserved introduction. Um, I will uh, proceed to undermine anything your audience might have taken away from those wonderful <laughs> remarks about me. Uh, but I suppose that's the way these things do sometimes go. <laughs> I suppose so. Already, you're hearing the the genial Paul Fry that I'm I'm so I'm so happy to um, have on. Um, I should also say to the audience, I don't know if it's audible, but um, let the record show that your your host 
has finally caught COVID. <laughs> and so I'm doing all right. But I, if, if, if I cough or if I seem a little um, under the weather, that's why I, I hope it'll come through okay. It might even seem relevant to the kind of conversation we have today. I don't, don't know. Worry. He's in Philadelphia. I'm on the <laughs> Connecticut shoreline. That's right. We are, we are, we are appropriately distanced. Um, Paul, um, you know, I, one thing I talked about in the intro was, um, how by the time I got to be your student, I had read Wordsworth over and over again. Um, but you know, it, it's quite possible. We, we have all kinds of listeners to this podcast and, uh, I know that I could say to you, well, tell us about who Wordsworth was. And, um, an hour later, the episode would be over, but in, in, a um, in brief, Paul, I mean, what, what, how would you explain to someone who is, say, interested in contemporary poetry, has heard of Wordsworth, but doesn't ha- hasn't really read him. Um, where does he sort of fit into your mental map of uh, the history of, let's say, English poetry? Well, one way to put it is that, and this is not original with me, uh, is that he belongs in a continuum that uh, perhaps takes its origin in Milton, and then perhaps passes through Wordsworth himself as the as as the, a most significant heir, uh, and then perhaps culminates for the reader interested in more recent poetry in Wallace Stevens, uh, and in the also in the ways that his oeuvre ramifies outward and influences certain other poets like well, for example, John Ashbery, maybe James Merrill. Uh, uh, and um, so, and, and it, you can find you can find Wordsworth comfortably looking both backward and forward in that mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have uh, so often during the course of my thinking about Wordsworth found myself simultaneously thinking about Stevens that I would, in particular, uh, compare those two authors. Yeah, um, so that that's a really helpful sense of. Um... A kind of across time, let's say a, a, a diachronic kind of tradition that that Wordsworth belongs to. C- can you say in a in a sentence or two, Paul, what the terms like? What are the terms of affiliation that would lead someone to group those? You know, say Milton, Wordsworth, Stevens, Ashbery. Like, what what is it about those poets that makes them seem um, affiliated? To, to- well, perhaps I should begin by putting it. Uh, negatively, at least according to a certain tradition, uh, the critic, uh, roughly contemporary with Wordsworth, named William Hazlitt, uh, who is actually a character in one of the two lyrical ballads. He's the figure Matthew, to whom William uh, responds uh, in uh, in a couple of companion poems. Uh, Hazlitt. Uh, grouped Wordsworth with Rousseau as the inheritor of Milton's uh, way of turning everything in the world into a form of himself. Hmm. Uh, In other words, uh, Hazlitt imputed to those figures a kind of monstrous subjectivity. And Hazlitt's disciple, John Keats, the poet, um, in one of his letters, then spoke of the Wordsworthian or egotistical sublime. 
attempting by that means to summarize what Hazlitt had been saying in his broader argument about literary history. He contrasted these writers with Shakespeare, whom he took to be impersonal, self-effacing, constantly embedded in the characters of his imagination and not in his own imagination. Uh, Now, I don't agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded compelling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to a certain extent, I agree with it about Milton without its its diminishing my admiration of Milton in the slightest. But I don't agree with it about Wordsworth because what I see his project aiming toward, and it's the project of the prelude, which is a monstrous, huge autobiographical poem that is usually the first thing that draws the ire of people who don't like subjectivity in literature, is not the suffusing everything with one's own self, but the disappearance of oneself into everything. The identification of those experiences in consciousness in which the self is least self-conscious, least prominent, and, and above all, least argumentative and assertive. And I think that we'll see... That way, the way that works in Slumber Did My Spirit Seal. But yeah. I think one can go anywhere in, in Wordsworth and find it. And so right. I see Wordsworth, and this is, by the way, not at all true of his personality. He was a person uh, with whom uh, conversation was considered to be impossible. It was just, it wasn't like Coleridge, whose monologues were simply mesmerizing and you got, you know, we were just overwhelmed by them. But uh-huh. Wordsworth would, would just talk on. Um, constantly pronouncing opinions about everything, and nobody could really get a word in edgewise, and it was found quite irritating. People typically didn't like Wordsworth. Right. And I think this. I think this is this is what contributed because Hazlitt was one of these people who was browbeaten by him. Uh, yeah. I think this is what contributed to Hazlitt's opinion, but I do not find that tendency actually at work in Wordsworth's poetry. So, But the dynamic you've described, it's so interesting, Paul, is like, and I, and I know this is, <clears throat> sorry, a figure that is meaningful to you in, in perhaps other contexts as well, because I, c- I can remember you using this phrase. There's a kind of duck-rabbit effect or something um, in the... Um, you know, the, uh, in other words, the kind of optical illusion where you look at the picture one way and you see the figure, uh, you mm-hmm. look at it the other way, you see the ground. Um, I, I, I take, w- uh, you know, your point that Wordsworth's personality may have led to this sort of f- foundational misreading of his poetry, but also in his poet, I mean, this is after all a poet who wrote an epic whose subject was not the founding of a city or the fall from um, Eden or whatever, but instead what the growth of a poet's mind, um, meaning his own. Um, so it well, would be, it's an easy misreading to have. Partly meaning his own. That's, that's mm-hmm. one of the right. equivocal ways of, uh, mm-hmm. needing mm-hmm. to read Wordsworth. You can say it's all about me. You can also say that the experience of spots of time is something that everyone has in childhood. And I know, for example, that I myself certainly did, and I and and I, I think it's 
It's very likely true. Yeah. And there's absolutely no reason why, if with, with my understanding of what the imagination does, the principle that sustains being a poet might not appear in everyone. In other words, Wordsworth is hoping that the genre of autobiography will be his means of tapping into something that he understands to be universal about human experience and human character. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, um, I think I first, and then you, you just now have uh, referred a couple of times to the phrase spots of time. I, I wonder if it might be useful, Paul, to give just in brief sort of summary of like one example from the prelude of what a spot of time. I mean, we don't need to get in, we don't get, need to get in necessarily to a reading of such a moment, well, but let me what, just... what kind of thing is a spot of time? What's the general misreading and, and what's the, the kind of gentle correction if, if we were to be modest that you're offering against that general misreading? Well, the, the, the tendency some, in a way, encouraged by Wordsworth. And, and I don't say that the mainstream readings of Wordsworth aren't somehow or another supported right. in any fundamental way by the poetry. I'm just suggesting that they're misunderstood in the atmosphere of another purpose or aim. Yeah. The general misunderstanding of the spots of time is that they point toward moments of sublime transcendence, moments that are fraught with uh, spiritual uh, revelation and enlightenment, and moments that are important to remember for that reason. In other words, they're epiphanic. As he communicates them, are like a set of spiritual guides. Yeah, yeah. So that that that's the typical way of understanding the spots of time. And, and what is I, one like? I'm I'm thinking of Wordsworth, for instance. He's ice skating and something. Or okay, yeah, that's the one I wanted to pick out. And the <laughs> well, reason I wanted to pick it out is because it was composed at roughly the same time okay. as "A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal," and it contains an expression that you will immediately recognize from. A slumber did my spirits. Okay, good, so good. It's in I, the middle of book one of the prelude, and I hope I can put my finger on it quickly. Well, you can take your time, uh, but uh, yeah, I'll bet you, I'll bet you can find it quickly enough. Yes. Um, so, may t- I take it away. This? Take it away, Paul. Yeah. Not seldom from the uproar, I retired. I suppose I better supply a context. It's supper time. A group of children who are skating on one of the lakes in the Lake District, this is probably Windermere, uh, a group of children uh, are, have decided they don't want to go home. They want to stay out. And then they start pretending that they're uh, horsemen uh, chasing the hounds and hares. And then they start, they skate and they skate and they skate, and they're very excited. And the, the, the mountains echo with their joyous cries. And uh, after the and the and in the meantime, the orange sky of evening died away. And and sorry, just just as a um, additional bit of context setting, young William Wordsworth is is among these children. This oh, he is. is. And, and then, this is a mem- This is so. This is a memory being offered yeah, by the poet. Yeah, this good. is context. And then he goes on to say, 
Not seldom from the uproar I retired into a silent bay or sportively glanced sideways, leaving the tumultuous throng to cut across the image of a star that gleamed upon the ice. And oftentimes, when we, in other words, he's still with the group of boys, when we had given our bodies to the wind, and all the shadowy banks on either side came sweeping through the darkness, spinning still the rapid line of motion, then at once have I, reclining back upon my heels, stopped short, yet still the solitary cliffs wheeled by me, even as if the earth had rolled with visible motion her diurnal round. Those of you who have been reading up on Slumber <laughs> Spirit by Spirit Seal, does that sound familiar? Roll it, ran, it rang a bell. Diurnal yeah. course with rocks and stones and trees. And then and then it actually continues. Uh, um, uh, and then uh, a lonely scene more lonesome among wood. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it continues. Uh, behind me, the other children, they, stretch in solemn train, feebler and feebler. And I, as I stood and watched till all was tranquil as a dreamless sleep. Now there's this moment of stillness in which the revolution of the earth can be felt and almost literally sensed. Mm-hmm is at the same time, without any sort of activity or agency, it's like a dreamless sleep. It is, in other words, something that borders on an intimation about death mm-hmm. and brings more closely into relation the experiences of life which notice are increasingly de-socialized during the course of this spot of time. And this is characteristic of the spots of time. What do you mean by de-socialized here? They, the, at first, everything is sociable and accomplished for a social aim. Like, for example, the imitation of the chase, as Wordsworth puts it, the horse racing, right? All, you know, this is all the games children play. But then, as the experience deepens, the others start to trail back behind, feebler and feebler. He doesn't mean that they're becoming more and more tired and feeble. He means that their presence to him is feebler and feebler. And that finally, he is absolutely alone with the whirling of the planet. And that this experience in turn becomes so profound that it's like a dreamless sleep. In other words, it is is a deepening of solitude beyond what one even imagines solitude to consist in. Not for the purpose of getting away from everybody, although that is part of the structure of the thing, but for the purpose of discovering something about what it is to have 
the thinghood of being non-human and whirling with everything mm. within oneself. It's like hearing the still sad music of humanity at the moment when you are completely separated from the social order mm. in Tintern Abbey. You mm-hmm. hear something that you don't hear within the social order. Mm-hmm. So that's th- that, that I think is what one might say about the skating episode. Yeah. And if one and if we took up a whole series of these spots of time, there are dozen, fifteen of them in the prelude, uh, of various kinds, not all happening in early childhood. Some of mm-hmm. them uh, some of them happening in adolescence. And on a couple of occasions, a couple of the most famous occasions, happening with apparently a different end in view. And this is something that uh, over the years I've quarreled with the great representatives of the Yale School about uh, Mm -hmm. uh, happening in adulthood. The ascent Mm -hmm. of Mount Simplon, the ascent of Mount Snowden, Mm -hmm. both of which are strategically placed in the poem, Simplon halfway through. Snowden concluding the poem and meant to carry a tremendous amount of uh, of of uh, interpretive weight. Um, those uh, I think spots can be explained too in the ways that I'm inclined to insp- to explain the spots, but it takes a little more work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we have other things to talk about. <laughs> um, but but I mean I'm glad I'm glad we took that that detour just now because I think um, much of that much of the the terms that you've just introduced will will uh, return in our in our conversation about the poem today. Yes. Um, maybe just one one small um, I think small uh, more bit of context setting though before we get to today's poem, which again is a, a slumber did my spirit seal, and I can I can remind um, listeners that there will be a link to the text of that poem in the episode notes, so you'll be able to read along as we discuss it. Um, Paul, I, I said in the introduction that um, this poem is generally thought of as one of a small grouping of poems um, known by readers as the Lucy poems. Um, some of those poems name and seem to be about a, a some kind of young girl, I guess, named Lucy. Other poems like this one don't, don't have any names in them at all, and yet we group the poems together. Um, what, what should we know about the about the group of poems as a group? I mean, are you persuaded that this is a kind of coherent group of poems? Um, in what sense, yes. In what sense, no. What do they have in common? Yes. Who was Lucy? I don't know. Well, first, just <clears throat> logically, uh, five of these poems were published in volume two of the Lyrical Ballads, 1800 and 1802. Uh, and three of them were published in sequence, uh, Strange Fits of Passion I Have Known, um, three years she grew, I, I, I'm sorry, uh, she dwelt among untrodden ways, and a slumber did my spirit seal. That's a sequence of three uh, lyrics, all of them in ballad meter, tetrameter, uh, trimeter, ABAB, uh, and um, all of them uh, seemingly having to do with the uh, departure of a female figure. Yeah, uh, and, um, and and let, let me just say, sorry to interrupt, Paul, but just yeah, yeah. one thing, Lyr- lyrical ballads, for those who don't know, is the sort of, you know, one of the kind of transformative landmark p- book publications in the history of English poetry. Um, 
published in two editions um, initially, as as Paul just said, in 1800, 1802, if I got that right. Well, 1798. Uh, And then uh, with revisions in 1802, uh, it was republished in two volumes. And volume two contained a great many new poems. Good. Yes. And so, um, um, and and it was a book that was notably um, co-authored by Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge um, and include included, um, for instance, Coleridge's poem that we mentioned briefly uh, a while ago, um, uh, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. Yes. Um, and, and, and many of, so there's lots and lots we could say about what was interesting about lyrical ballads, what was lyrical about them, what was ballad-like about them. But anyway, I just wanted to give it that bit of context. It's a fascinating title because it has an element of contradiction of terms in it. A ballad is supposed to be a fiction, a story, a narrative. Uh, lyrical is supposed to be the um, imposition of an indi- individual imaginative voice on right. fictive material. Um, and that is, in fact, what Wordsworth is working toward in those poems that actually are lyrical ballads. He published other kinds of poems, Coleridge's The Nightingale, for example, and his own great poem, Tintern Abbey, uh, in lyrical ballads. And there's they're just not lyrical ballads, and there's no reason to pretend that they are. Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. So um, fascinating. Uh, but uh, I pulled you away from helping us understand what the Lucy poems are. So three of those poems as a sequence in lyrical ballads gone. And then another a poem also published in this volume uh, called Lucy Gray, a much more conventional sort of ballad. Uh, about a little girl who uh, is sent to the town with a lantern to see her mother home from town, but instead gets lost in a snowstorm and turns out to have uh, fallen off a bridge. Uh, And uh, so she is then mourned. uh, And that is published later in the the sequence of poems. and then after that, there's the poem called Three Years She Grew in Sun and Shower, uh, which is actually written in a six-line stanza, which is a variant on the ballad stanza. All the other poems are written in ballad stanza. Um, but this is a poem about a little girl whom nature decided to take into her under her own tutelage uh, and to rear uh as uh, a being completely inspired by her nature. Mm, uh, mm. And she apparently grows into adolescence and then she is, uh, um, she disappears and uh, the poet is once again bereft. Um, it is possible, I think, to argue that with the exception of the story in Lucy Gray, all of these poems allow for a girl to have grown into adolescence and then to have died. Um, uh, we, we can see, I mean, it, it's it, Strange Fits of Passion is a very interesting poem um, because in as a narrative, at the end of the poem, Lucy isn't dead. The poet right. says, oh, I mean, the poet has just seen the moon almost with incredible suddenness drop behind her house. Because he's, he's riding falling. on horseback, and it, there's a he's on because he's ri- yeah, you know, a little bit like frost uh, stopping by the woods in a snowy evening, uh-huh. and oh, 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 the horse <laughs> the horse is going hoof by hoof going along, uh, and in any case, and the poet 
is in a dream very similar to the dream that's evoked in the first line of a slumber did my spirit seal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a, the, uh, how is it described? It's uh, um, in one of those sweet dreams I slept. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and in this dream, he has no notion of uh, Lucy being susceptible of the touch of earthly years. But then this sudden dropping stone, the falling moon behind the house, uh, makes a sudden thought come into his mind. Oh, mercy to myself, I cried, if Lucy should be dead. Yeah. The thing is, though, in the middle of the poem, it says, back when she was healthy, in June, when she yeah. was still as vigorous as a rose, um, I used to visit her without a thought in my head. Well, this suggests that she isn't healthy anymore. And even if she isn't dead at the end of the poem, and if she's still in this healthy condition at the end of the poem, we can read the poem, we have to read the poem, really, as a premonition of her coming death. Right. So I would argue that whatever the figure is, and there are thousands of critical pages on the mm-hmm. question who Lucy is, what Lucy means. Right. There is a continuity, with the exception of Lucy Gray, which is, I think, the hardest of five poems yeah. to fit together, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of a figure who is essentially the same, who's continuous from mm-hmm. to bone, whatever that figure may be or represent. Now, and- we should speculate a little bit about Lucy. There's a kind of philological instinct which came out with respect to that subject as every other, pointing out that Lucy was a very common name for the young <laughs> ladies whom poets had lost. You know, oh, good. Well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> right. And uh, but it's true. There is such an article which is um, which has been influential among scholars. Um, my own view, and, and then there is the uh, opinion among a few uh, derived from an important scholar of the 30s and 40s that Lucy was Wordsworth's sister Dorothy, mm. and that somehow or another um, this preoccupation with her death was just a kind of, well, as in Strange Fits of Passion, an intimation that she might die, right? Right. Uh, or some so, some kind of um, metaphorical act of mourning. Exactly. Or something. And then, yeah. well, what would that be like? How could I react right. to it? How could I live without her? And mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so that's been an opinion. My own opinion, I should just come right out and say, and it's by no means remarkable, is that Lucy means light or lucency. Right. And that it has something to do with spirit. In other words, with that which is not just our material selves, so that it is something you could argue. And remember, Wordsworth writes a lot of poems from a very early age on the loss of his poetic powers. Yeah. The uh, Tintern Abbey and the Intimations Oak can be read that way. And the and it's so you could argue that the Lucy poems is on this same subject. That there's something in himself that he feels somehow or another has been lost. Uh, so that if you read the first line of A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal in that spirit, you would say to yourself, oh, spirit, he means he means something in himself, presumably, 
And after all, if Lucy is spirit, the first line is completely anticipatory of everything that's come because her death sealed within him what had been the, a source of inspiration. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, my, my own tendency is to see Lucy in those terms. Good. Um, yeah, I was I, I was going to say, but the, I'm I'm sure influenced by you in ways that I've forgotten. <clears throat> right. Her her name etymologically is related to light in the same way, for instance, that the name Lucifer is right. The um, light bearer. Light bearer. Yeah. Um, Lucy Gray sounds by by those lights um, like an oxymoronic name in a way. Right? Philology again. In 1794, a poem called Lucy Gray, a ballad uh, poem, was published. Oh, well, okay. That said. takes care of that problem. That takes care of that. But I, <clears throat> I think before we get any further, Paul, we should have a reading of the poem. Um, so would you read A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal for our audience? I will. Uh, and just a remark about the first line, another aspect of it. Um, there's a very strange way in which from memory, whenever when people recite this poem, they say, a slumber did my spirit steal, and not a slumber did my spirit seal. There, there are lots of tricks like this in Wordsworth's poetry. He's a, he's, he's a, he's a vague poet, quite by design, um, I think it's partly his vagueness that vagueness that makes him so attractive to close reading. Uh, <laughs> you you know you you have to figure these things out. In the intimations, though, there's a line: uh, "The winds came to me from the fields of sleep." Now, who can resist saying "fields of sheep"? It is, right. after all, a pastoral poem. You know. Right. Right. And that's where the winds come from. I, what fields of sleep? What on earth does that mean? You know, and uh, and he's constantly crossing you up. And this story. remind this reminds me, in in fact, of Ashbery, um, who would who does that kind of thing all the time. Yes, you know, I think would. of phrases like the mooring of starting out, yes. which you know one wants to read as the morning of starting out, yeah. um, and and so on. Um, uh, all right, all so right. Well, yes. I'll, I'll read Paul. Thanks. A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees, rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. Um, thanks, Paul. So <clears throat> for those who aren't looking and, and couldn't just hear it with their, um, you know, in their ears just now, two stanzas, um, two, uh, stanzas of ballad meter, as you suggested before. So, um, for those who don't know, alternating lines of tetrameter, meaning a four beat line and trimeter, a three beat line, um, that, that rhyme, a, B, A, B. Um, each stanza is a whole sentence. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I don't know, Paul, is there, is there something, you know, ballads tend to go on <laughs> longer than this. Yeah, it's right? one of the odd things about this one. 
Right. Um, one is drawn, I think, perhaps initially to saying, okay, we have two stanzas. Let's think about how to read them in relation to each yes, other. Absolutely. Um, so say something about how you would begin to do that or what possibilities present themselves to you in that enterprise. Okay. I, 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 do, um, do interject when I've gone on and, and, and uh, because I can get back to these things. But I'll do my best. But, and also, say, if, if there's a more profitable way by your lights of getting into the poem, feel no, free. No. I, I want to say that... Um, you, as as you probably realize, and I've already said this in other aspects of thinking about the uh, lyrical ballads and a, more particularly the Lucy poems, there's been a tremendous amount of confusion and critical elaboration about the meaning of this poem. Uh, it, it it has uh, inspired virtually every critic of any ambition of any kind <laughs> to <laughs> produce a reading of some sort, frequently quarreling with other readings, uh, sometimes just producing a new reading. Um, but there's a, there, there's a big, thick volume of uh, about this one poem. Uh, which is a summary of all the readings of the poem with lots of the author's own opinions thrown in. Uh, and this is, and, and, and so one can sort of drown in these mm -hmm. readings. And so one challenge, it seems to me, is to try to figure out what in the simplest possible terms right. we might take this poem to be saying. Usually that's where you begin. You begin with what, of course, the new critics didn't like, the heresy of paraphrase. You begin with a paraphrase. You say, well, this in plain prose is what it means, right? And you could say something like, I don't know, my intellect was asleep mm -hmm. or kept asleep. Sealed. A slumber did my spirit seal. My yeah. intellect and, was asleep. And that, of course, already puts a kind of a, circumference around the notion of spirit because all you really want to say is well my power of reflection mm -hmm. because uh i you know I, I i didn't know what was going on hence i was not concerned for now human fears if if i'm going to do some sort of a simple reading of it i have to anticipate what's what what's in the next two lines because human fears in itself gives me no guidance but if I read back from the next two lines, I can say, okay, I, had, I was not concerned about her mortality. In other words, I was not concerned about what inevitably will happen to her because she's human. And, and, and you're, you, you seem supported in that reading, if by nothing else, then I had no human fears. The second line of the poem ends it with a colon, as though what follows it in the third and fourth line is a, a sort of... yes elaboration of what it means to have had no human fears. No, I think right? the third and fourth lines reinforce the idea that human fears means I had no fears about her humanity. But keep in mind in the long run that we'll have to figure out what the relationship between the speaker and the subject is. Hmm. Uh, because you, as you read along, you could very easily read this line, and here I anticipate, I had no fears that had anything to do with my own humanity either. Mm. I was really oblivious to the condition of humanity in which... It wasn't... Yeah, go on. Sorry. But, 
now that now if we're sort of lingering over something like a literal or positive reading, we go we can go on immediately and say what he means is, I thought that she was the kind of being that was impervious to the aging process, right? The touch of earthly years. She just, she just, it didn't seem to be possible to think of her in those terms. And, you know, this isn't such a strange idea. When, when you look at a child, when you, you know, you think, how could that person grow old? And so, I don't know, something like that. But notice all the complications we just can't even resist introducing, even in the course of giving such a reading, would be, to me, a common sense. Let's just use that expression. Yeah, fair. Way of reading the first four lines. Well, I'm going to resist making um, less commonsensical <laughs> complications to that reading, but uh, th- there's there's one I'm biting my tongue about that. Um, but but because I, I think what you're doing is a very useful thing. Keep going with this kind I of um, common now, sense reading. In, now, this is structurally speaking, and the, the, the two stanzas, you know, is, are what lend credence to the idea. We tend to read this as sort of amazing grace, a before and after poem. Was right. blind, but now I see. Before I was oblivious, and now I'm enlightened. We, we just take it for granted that the structural relation between these two stanzas is of that sort. In other words, that we're on the verge of learning what the poet learned. From, and the gut, the gap between the two stanzas, we always and we love it because it's empty and silent. We take to be Lucy's death. Mm-hmm. That's that's just really almost sort of impossible to get away from in right. readings of this poem. So okay, she died, <laughs> and before I had no notion that she would die because I didn't feel that she was subject to the aging process. Okay, yeah. Now. And this is strangely Newtonian, the line, mm-hmm. no motion now, uh, has she now, no force. You know, F equals MA, force <laughs> equals mass. And so she's, she, she, mass, and motion is acceleration. There you are. There's the Newtonian formula. No motion has she now, no force. No right? force. And, uh, of course, this reinforces the idea that she's now a completely material entity. She's just an object in a world of objects, therefore subject to something like a Newtonian formula. And then, um, so fine, all good. Uh, And she has no power of perception. It just follows from that if she's such an object that she neither hears nor sees. So she has no power of perception. So I've described what what, what her being dead is like in these lines, right? And now I see that in that condition, she spins daily, she is spinning daily, together with all the material things that last, that that keep spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning, rocks and stones and who knows, the trees, they certainly don't seem to have any sort of pantheistic capability. There's nothing emphasized about their being sentient beings or yeah. even alive. You almost yeah. think of them as a petrified forest. You know, I mean, yeah. she's, she is 
rotating and rotating and rotating with all these other essentially mineral things. Right. The the, the trees there, um, I, I like what you say about the, the, the essentially petrified forest, but in, in a sense, one could say like, because the poem doesn't seem to care about individuating between trees. It's just like the earth has trees on it. And a hundred years from now, they might be different trees, but from the perspective of this poem, they're just the same trees, you know? When I was young, I, I just was outraged by the lack of economy in the expression rocks and stone. I, 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 you know, this is a poem with, with as few words as a poem could possibly have. Why do two of those words have to be rocks and stones? <laughs> well, I remember, I remember from, from uh, my seminar with you, Paul, you saying about that last line, the world is two thirds mineral. <laughs> well, it is. And that yeah. is even the, even given that I now accept that rocks are big and stones are smaller. Right. right. I accept Yeah. That. Yeah, <laughs> but but it's but that doesn't undermine the fact that the world is two thirds mineral. There's nothing at all about yeah. ocean, for example. Right, and and it could e- easily have um, it would have scanned perfectly well to have said something like rolled around in Earth's diurnal course with rocks and lakes and trees or with yeah you couldn't say seas and know, trees that wouldn't work yeah, so well. right, yeah right <laughs> well you know I thought lake poet I'll give him a lake you know I don't give know him a lake exactly yeah. and then and um, second generation romantics can complain that he should have exchanged his lakes for ocean that's right yeah so um okay so you've you've walked us through this sort of plain um uh you know, sort of paraphrasing of the poem, you know, in a way that seems whatever objections, you know, the new critics might have had to it to be sensible enough. Um, Here is right. um, A kind of ordinary enough, though, not necessarily not profound um, experience of a kind of naivete about mortality that gets corrected by life. Um, and death. And, yeah. and so there's, there's a kind of a before in which the child looks impervious to mortality. Mm-hmm. And then after in which we know all too well that the child was not. And, um, and just quickly to remark two things in passing about the poem that still really are under the heading of interesting detail without contributing to anything like a big revisionary reading. Yeah. Uh, in, in the, at the end of the first stanza, you have, um, the rotation of the earth around the sun, and you have the use of the word earth. And so that's one form of rotation. At the end of the second stanza, you have the diurnal rotation, again of the earth, because the earth appears twice, just rocks and stones. Oh, why does, why does he use that? Right. You know, I, I, I was much too censorious about this when I was young. Um, <laughs> but it's very interesting. I'm not sure exactly why, that in the first stanza, the uh, rotation of time is annual. And in the second stanza, it's diurnal. It has in some sense sped up, but it seems to be simply in the register. Well, we don't know in what register example. And the very fact that it's sped up, which is one of those things that one could also say must be intentional. Right. Uh, Um, uh, mm-hmm. is interesting. 
Yeah, or even if not intentional, meaningful somehow. Yeah. 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 Well, time sped up. And that's one of the many things I didn't realize. I'm imagining something like a, um, I'm, I'm making a gesture here with the, which listeners can't see, but like a figure skater, you know, going into a spin with her arms out wide at mm-hmm. first and then tightening and accelerating into that spin. Yes. By the end, the poem has something of that energy with oh, first imagining the earth going around the sun and then oh, that's imagining the yeah. earth spinning on its axis. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's that that's great. That's great. Yeah. And just and just again to call attention to one of the subtle details which doesn't contribute itself in any Good. way really to a reading is that diurnal course. In those, in, in that expression, you have the words die, earn, <laughs> and course, which of course, as you know, means corpse. Hmm. Yeah. Earth's diurnal course. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, really, that really gives you a, 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 a pretty grim picture of what happens where Earth is. Yeah. And, um, and yet... Well, it, it, it doesn't really add itself to anything like the reading that one might go on to develop. Oh. Quickly, my argument is that this is not a before and after poem. What? <laughs> now, I know, I know, but I, I've been feigning ignorance. Now, uh, let's hear it. <laughs> how, how, how could that be, Paul? It seems so obviously to be one. Well, it does go back to the question whether Lucy and the spirit that is sealed can really be fully kept apart in their identity. But it also is, it can can simply hinge on verbal detail. In the first stanza, she seemed a thing. Now, there's actually been a feminist literature on that subject. Oh, well, you know, there's Wordsworth, a sweet thing. And, and mm-hmm. the word thing is used very similarly in the poem called Lucy Gray. And, and how objectifying and demeaning of a, uh, you know, you know how the, how the argument right. goes. But right. of course, for Wordsworth, the important thing about the word thing is, th- is, is thinghood. Mm-hmm. So she already has some connection with thinghood. And she mm-hmm. could not feel. Right. In the second stanza, she neither hears nor sees. What has what where what where has the difference crept in here? Right. Right. So, in other words, in the second stanza, I, I was going to say, as you were paraphrasing the second stanza, that a kind of difference between the first line and the second line of the second stanza, in other words, the fifth and sixth lines of the poem. Yes. I'll read them again. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. Um, you, you gave such a lovely description of that first line as like Newtonian. Um, but that would be a description of her as object, whereas yeah. the line that follows it is a kind of description of her no longer functioning as subject. Yes. Right. She 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 doesn't do the thing that people do no. anymore, which you know rocks never could do. But which is to is, sense things. Did she do those things? Well, right. I'm okay. So I'm I'm yeah, so that was the first half of it, right? I'm saying that would be the before and after sort of premise. But then now we go back to look to the first stanza again. 
and she seemed a thing that could not feel. Now, she there's seemed, something. So, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. Yeah. No, no, no. You go on. Okay, I'll go on. There, there's something clever that happens there. At, at, that's the third line. She seemed a thing that could not feel. It's um, I'm a, it's the only line that doesn't have any punctuation at the end. It's the most enjambed line in the in the poem. I think it seems sort of clever to me uh, because um, if you were to say she seemed a thing that could not feel, period, or if you were to you would the implication is that we're using that verb to feel um, intransitively. Yes. Um, right. It would Th- that be is, an insult to her. Right. <clears throat> you know, yes, right. You might say to someone, perhaps if you were, uh, if you were um, a jilted lover or something like, uh, gosh, you, you seem like you don't, you don't even have any feelings. Exactly. You, you can't feel. It'd be hard to get away from that meaning of the line right. if it had a period at the end of it. Absolutely. Right. Right. So, but, but it doesn't. Um, right. So, so perhaps that meaning is kind of raised. I mean, this would be a kind of ordinary way of reading an enjambment, right? That, that sort of meaning is sort of raised. And then we realize in the fourth line that what she can't feel is not feeling in the transitive sense, but to get back to the kind of, um, uh, plain spoken, commonsensical, um, reading you gave at, at the beginning, what she can't feel is, the touch of age it's some kind of um uh genteel figurative language here that means like i you know we can't imagine her getting wrinkles or gray hair exactly the aging process yeah 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 but if we just take that line on its own for a moment um it really does seem like even before the after (laughs) before the event that seems to be implied as having transpired between the two stanzas she already was an object that that could not feel in the same way that rocks and stones cannot feel. Or maybe she wasn't an object. Maybe she was what we have to decide finally, maybe as materialists, Wordsworth wasn't yet, Coleridge had called him in 1796, but half an atheist. Uh, <laughs> you know, Maybe we have to realize that part of the trick of the poem is the supposition that spirit is something that doesn't somehow or another inhere in the intense, from the religious standpoint, depressing materiality with which the poem concludes. Hmm. I mean, if it's a before and after poem, an amazing grace poem, we expect uplift. Right. You know? Right. And, and uh, the only uplift I, I once was blind, get, but now can see. Right. Yeah, yeah. I know. I think the only uplift we get is something like insight. <laughs> uh huh. And that um, the maybe Lucy isn't named because she was named. She was. She, she had. She has been, in the sense that we conventionally ascribe to let's say poetic inspiration just for example right dead all along hmm. that might not even be necessarily a bad thing but it 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 takes it 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 it, it, it sort of strips away uh, from the eyes the illusion that there is duality 
that there um, is the overwhelming materiality of the poem's conclusion and the lost, but at one point still there, spirituality of the poem's beginning. We don't know when the slumber set in. With yeah. respect to Lucy, there doesn't seem to be a before and after. The very delight with which reflection contemplates her would suggest that she never did feel the touch of earthly years insofar as she appeared to someone else. So he was just one of these wonderful beings concerning whom there was no before and after. Mm. Except that, and, and also, you know, the, if the speaker says, I was, in some sense, dead. I was dead to perception, let's say. One thing that might be implied by that first line, a slumber did my spirit seal. I was dead. And she's, what do I know? She seemed to be something, you know, I I, I just wasn't very clever. Hmm. And now she is dead. And I didn't have the perceptive or reflective ability to understand that she would age just like any other living being in the world. And now she neither hears nor sees. It's very difficult to drive a wedge between the speaker and the object of his interest. He constantly finds within the incredible constraint of this tiny poem the need to say that they were really just the same. And and might, might that now in the event of her literal death offer some kind of consolation well that is a really good question <laughs> i i suggested just now that it was hard to find consolation but one could perhaps find insight yes in other words in the very awareness that nothing has changed after all one can arrive at a new understanding of the relation between life and death. But it's a strange thought. The idea would be that in some sense it was life that was the illusion. It was, or that was temporary or not, not fundamental. Well, after all, you know, the whole, there's something very conventional about also true as far as we know yes <laughs> about the perceptions that are mentioned in a sense as somebody else's because from my own point of view i didn't see this yeah about the aging process ho-hum you know what else is new tell us something we didn't know before mm-hmm. <laughs> in other words uh- in, in other words to adhere to a literal reading, and by the way, I, I hope that the difficulty I had enunciating that reading shows how virtually impossible it is to adhere to such a reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would, after all, 
result in an incredibly boring greeting card sort of a poem. Right. You know? Right. The poem is stranger and and more wonderful than that. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I, I found myself thinking as as you were offering this revisionary reading, Paul, of a of a of a reading that I I can remember you giving of another um, short Wordsworth poem, which I don't think we need to read aloud, but can maybe just briefly summarize. I'm thinking of the poem "We Are Seven, um, in which correct me if I've if my if my memory is wrong, uh, the the, the uh, sort of adult male poet let's call him Wordsworth or something, somebody comes across a, a young girl who's tending to some tombstones in a cemetery. And he asks her how many brothers and sisters she has. And she says, as the title would have you think, well, well we are seven. And then she begins to enumerate them. And among the siblings whom she counts as her siblings are ones whose graves she's cleaning at the time or standing by or whatever. And, um, the man corrects her, right? He says, well, you're five, you know, and the others aren't alive. (laughs) Maybe the rhymes are better than that. I can't, I can't remember. Um, no, five and alive, I think is not rhymed. (laughs) No. Okay, good. Um, that's why I'm just a critic. (laughs) Uh, And, um, but the girl insists we are seven. Um, now that that's a poem, you know, some of the themes are similar, you know, of course, to the ones at issue here. And speaker gets uh, very angry. He he starts being rude to her at the end of the right. Poem. But they are dead. Don't you understand? They're dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, one way of taking the girl's insistence that in fact we are seven would would be, say, a kind of Christian theological reading in which, of course, my my brothers and sisters, well, their bodies have died, but their spirits are alive and in heaven, just as mine is alive and here for now, but we'll join them in heaven later, and nothing about what happens on earth can change that. Um, and yet, as I recall, Paul, that's not the that's not the position being staked out in your view by the girl there. And it seems to me to be quite related to the that's, sort that's, of question of the possibility of consolation in a slumber did my spirit seal. So, so what does the girl think? Well, and, and, the position yeah. you outline, which is of course, perfectly reasonable position and one that Wordsworth himself would have ascribed to uh, within 10 years and for the rest of his life. Right. Is what speaker insists on at the end of the poem. The girl doesn't see it that way at all. She sees that the commonalty of her six siblings as their being bodies. Two of them are overseas. They're certainly not present, you know, mm-hmm. and they can't just be summoned, right? Mm-hmm. Two are elsewhere, and, and, and these two are underground. She, um, because the two underground are the closest, you know, they're at the bottom of her garden, right? You know, they're the ones she actually pays the most attention to and remembers most vividly. She's absolutely without any illusions about their death. Like Hmm. all children in cottages in Wordsworth's time, they were, they witnessed those deaths. She witnessed those deaths. She was by the bedside when 
in agony they died. And she talks about it. Mm -hmm. The the speaker's idea that she doesn't know anything about death is just totally absurd. Mm -hmm. What she doesn't prefer to say anything about or to take into account in her ontology and her sense of the being of all of her siblings is the notion of life after death. Right. Which is what the speaker, who is conventionally religious, is insisting on. Right. If we if we have that ontology, the Christian one, we'd say, well, they're not here anymore. They're in heaven now. These are just their bodies that yeah, they've left behind. Just their bodies. What? What do right. you mean, just yeah. their bodies? You know, that's what I've got here. Right. Right. Um, okay. So, <clears throat> am I right, Paul, in thinking that 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 sort of quick and dirty reading you've just offered of that poem has something now to tell us again about as we f- think in a sort of concluding way about a slumber did my spirit seal is something like the same logic at work here i think it you? is completely yeah, and i think that what you've done and said uh brings into view the relationship between a consolatory structure and a and a structure of insight uh, which is, I mean, the We Are Seven is a companion poem to another poem in Lyrical Ballads called Anecdote for Fathers, uh, which the subtitle of which, how the art, or How the Art of Lying May Be Taught. <laughs> uh, uh, and in that poem, the speaker, this doesn't have to do with religion or the afterlife, but it's, it's once again, a, a speaker who browbeats a child. The speaker uh, is out walking with a child and he's just brimming with happiness. The speaker is just one of those days when, you know, the birds are singing, everything's perfect. And uh, so he says to the child, where would you rather be, Liswin Farm or Kilve? And they happen to be at um, um, uh, uh, Liswin Farm and the child says after a while, oh, I'd rather be at Kilve. But he doesn't know why. And the speaker starts to say, oh, why would you rather be at Kilve? Isn't it great here at Lisbon Farm? So the child is just deaf because the speaker keeps bugging him about this. <laughs> you know? And the child looks around and he finally sees a weather vane. Yeah. You know, in, on, in, in the pic, pic, pictorial frame uh, of what there during their walk and he says oh you know because at Kilve there was no weathercock that's why I, that's why i like it better yeah <laughs> oh, you know that's the poem you know the speaker it, browbeats the child whose sense of the lack of difference right among things right live bodies dead bodies what's the difference one place, another place, what's the difference? The speaker in both poems is trying to introduce a logic of difference to a child whose instinct is all for unity. And I would suggest that the before and after structure of slumber involves a conventional logic of difference 
and that the underlying message, which subverts the before and after structure, insists rather on the importance of unity, uh-huh. of the so, unity of beings. Yeah. As Wordsworth puts it in the Prospectus to the Recluse, uh, in widest commonalty spread. You don't need a weather weather vane to know which way the wind blows. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking, Paul, too, of the the line and "Oh, the difference to me" mm. from "Yes, she dwelt among the untrodden ways." Is is that have I got have am I remembering that yes. right? Um, That's a fascinating poem. Could I say a word yeah. or two about it? Yeah, say a word about it because I, I mean I I I don't you know obviously I, I'm sort of bringing it in because I think it's it's real. Up, you know, some listeners' ears might have perked up when they heard you talking about difference versus commonality. Now, this is a poem which begins with a very mysterious notion of an untrodden way. Now, a way is a path. How can a path be untrodden? In other words, the very first line involves a contradiction in terms. We know what he means. We're gonna, we, we'll know what he means throughout the poem because all these are <laughs> commonplace expressions, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you know, Wordsworth knows what he's doing. He was, by the way, an extremely good close reader. He read one of his own sonnets called With, With Ships the Sea Was Sprinkled in a letter to Lady Beaumont. He let, I think he was wrong about his sonnet, but he read it absolutely brilliantly with uh-huh. just the kind of attention to uh, discriminatory detail that close reading involves. Now, but I love that you think he was wrong. That's great. <laughs> well, yeah. well, we yeah, we've read the intentional fallacy. I mean, he hadn't, but we have. Yeah. yeah. In any case, uh, in, in any case, then it goes on to say that she was like um, she was she was like a violet half hidden by a stone. And but again, the she here is is Lucy, like maybe. Are yeah. gloriously shining in the sky. The star is not half hidden. She is. Now she was. Um, uh, th- there were very few to love her, and none to praise. If they loved her, why didn't they praise her? <laughs> you know, what 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 is is are, are, are they just waiting around for some poet to come along? and so goes the whole poem and then so finally she she dies she disappears and after all this all these reflections on the dangers of the way in which language unintentionally introduces difference because we know what all these expressions mean we're not really pulled up short by them and yet at the same time, they're all what the what the rhetoricians call catacreses. They are rhetorical mistakes. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the poem, the, the speaker sheepishly says, well, I realize the difference seems to be a mistake, but oh, the difference to me. Because I loved her. Mm-hmm. And now the world seems empty to me. Mm-hmm. So that has has that speaker not um, absorbed the kind of insight that you feel 
sort of brimming in in the poem that is our main topic. I think today. the inside is reserved for that poem, Slumber. But I will say that in that poem, and certainly too, in, in uh, Strange Fits of Passion, which is all about a falling rock, you know, yeah. there's mm-hmm. no consolation. Mm-hmm. The, spe- right. the fact that uh, the very fact that the speaker says with pathos, oh, the difference to me, which is what anybody in mourning would say, you know, shows that this is not, you know, the traditional structure of elegy in which the fi- it, having passed through mourning, one finally arrives at a moment of revelation or consolation or uh, religious transcendence or whatever the case may be, as I say, in the traditional structure of elegy. Right. Right. Um, Paul, you've given us, um, you know, a, a kind of beautiful walking through of the poem in its, um, in as sort of, um, um, a first pass that was as modest and kind of unassuming as we could be. And then you've, that we had to work to get it. Um, as you say, I mean, the poem is complex, even at that level. Paraphrase and, and, this poem is incredibly hard. So good. Yeah. And then you've given us, you know, your own sort of revisionary reading of that, of that paraphrase, which, you know, I for one find totally compelling I wonder as a as a kind of concluding movement for this conversation, if if you could just say a word about or two <laughs> about what is interesting. To, I mean, you referred earlier to that kind of thick volume of readings of this poem that you know has been collected. Uh, if if you could say a word about what, if anything, um, sort of first thought for you is revealed. You know, if we could, in a sense, take an X-ray of that book, you know, what would we learn about what it is that criticism or close reading wants from poems, yeah. and yeah. you know, Very what good. it is yeah, that yeah. You, that you want instead, or something? I don't know. Well, I don't know that I want anything instead. Fine, uh, yeah, but that was I, too much. I do feel that well. Okay, a couple of things can be said. First of and all, and fine, fine if you want to like point out, you know, a couple of influential readers of the poem, well, or whatever, you know, if if that's know, if that matters. That to would you. Yeah. that would maybe complicate things in directions we don't want to go and don't have time to go. In. So fair enough. But, yeah. but but one thing one can say is that the greater the taciturnity and brevity of an utterance, the more open it is to a variety of interpretations. You know, I mean, the longer an utterance and the more carefully articulated the utterance, the less subject it is to misunderstanding. Of course, there will always be misunderstanding. It's the nature of the relationship between language and speech, which is another subject. Don't need to go there. (laughs) But at the same time, it's undoubtedly true that the brevity of an utterance is part of its built-in obscurity. Mm. So that, and, and, you know, this is a, Wordsworth wrote all of these Lucy poems while freezing next to a stove in Goslar, Germany, uh, with Dorothy. Dorothy was there with him. Uh, 
Coleridge had come over with them, but he'd gone off to Göttingen to study metaphysics. And they were alone in this place called Goslar, a kind of a walled, large town. Um, and Wordsworth wrote some of the best poems he ever wrote, including the first draft of the prelude. Hmm. Coleridge went to study metaphysics. They were stuck with physics. <laughs> they were, they were, they were, Wordsworth wrote a very, uh, some very amusing poems, actually, about uh, how cold they were. <laughs> yeah, good. But uh, uh, in any case, he wrote these poems there. And he. Uh, some people have actually said that they were an expression of homesickness. Some people, I mean, it has been argued that mm. Lucy is England, for example. <laughs> Uh, and, and the argument can be sustained. There is one poem which wasn't published in Lyrical Ballads, which a lot of people consider to be an, a, 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 a Lucy poem, which is about homesickness. And so, yeah, okay, that, that too. Anyway, one of the things that generates the infinitude of close readings is the poem's invitation to close reading by not really saying very much. It's, it's, I, th I think it's our struggle to get it to say more than it says that has led to the richness of variety in interpretation of the poem. In, in, in some sense, if, if perhaps if we do it badly, we're like the father in Anecdote for Fathers, who, you know, wants the child to say more and sort of, yes. you know. And also and, wants and, to say something more conventional. And I don't think right. we can accuse the critics of yes. wanting to so say we should, something more conventional. That father's a bad critic, maybe we can <laughs> say, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing that occurs to me to hear is that the, the, um, the situation you describe in which the brevity and relative um, um, silence of the poem is what, provokes or elicits the critical ingenuity and so forth. Yes. That line of argument is that it, it seems analogous to me in a way to the situation of the Lucy poems in which the sort of the brevity is not the brevity of the poetic utterance, but the brevity of the girl's life. That's very good. That, that is, that is true. The other Lucy poems, while not long are longer. They're not as long as a typical ballad. You pointed out earlier that ballads right. tend to go on and on, and that's definitely yeah. yeah feature of them. Yeah, but I mean, I guess the point that I'm making is is that the you know by by this analogy that the um the the critic might be something like uh, the elegiac poet who sort of encountered the thing that was alive. It has passed. The poem is over. It won't keep talking to us. Mm -hmm. And so we as critics try to reanimate it somehow or yeah. to make something of it or to have it go on talking. And, and of course, one thing we can say is, well, this unsealed uh, not only his spirit, but her spirit, and it's, you know, flown aloft. Yeah. Everything else is whirled around in Earth's diurnal course. But the what was sealed at the beginning of the poem is released, right? I mean, you, mm. you could say that. It's just that the poem mm. doesn't say it. The poem doesn't. <laughs> no, the poem doesn't say it. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I just yeah. a word about um, why, you know, why we 
maybe an anthropological word about why we yes. read. Yes, please. Uh, and why we read Wordsworth, but why we read anything, really. I mean, it's, it's, literature seems always to be about conflicts of duty between public and private spheres. Uh, it, and I, I think whether you think of, whether you emphasize its fictive character or its dramatic character or its lyric character, there's always something concerning the relationship between one's sense of independent selfhood and one's sense of commitment to uh, community. Obviously, in epic and classical theater, we know the forms that, that this takes. Uh, but I think it's it's always there, and I think that it can be distilled into a way of thinking about the relation in all our lives between doing and being. Mm. Our our mission on Earth, as defined by our nature as social beings, is to do, to act, to be engaged, to be involved, to make choices which, of course, are very much like making interpretations, hmm. to, uh, to uh, 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 give up as well as to seek, to hmm. find paths that coordinate with the paths of others and diverge from the paths of others. In other words, to, to, be, to be social animals is to be doing. Hmm. But I think there's something in all of us no matter how activist we are in our natures, <laughs> that recognizes an interiority which has much more to do with being, and that and 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 recognizes particularly in certain moments, let's call them spots of time, <laughs> that one just is, <laughs> not that one is something doing something but that one just is. And my view is that literary experience uh, gives us all the excitements, vicarious excitements of doing and a profound understanding of the possibilities of doing and a kind of uh, 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 a temperate, tep temperate, appropriate distancing from the most aggressive forms of doing without dismissing them as unnecessary or impossible, but that it at the same, and, it, and that it does this by largely formal means, hence mm -hmm. the preoccupation readers have always had with matters that are formal, but that it does this while simultaneously providing us with intimations of being, of those moments in consciousness when somehow or another agency is stripped away and replaced by just being there, ontogeny, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, I think that's the excitement of reading is the, is, is the, uh, 
acting out in one's own consciousness of the juxtaposition between doing and being. That's beautiful and profound. Do do you think that literature does that especially, or would you say that all art does that to some extent, or is there something about linguistic art in particular that provides that kind of? Well, I, I think there's something about linguistic art in particular because well, I, I I actually am an amateur painter, and my yeah. painting is non-representational, so that I don't actually use painting as a means of organizing the world for myself. Uh, but as somehow or another, um, saying or doing something that doesn't involve representing, and I and right. somehow or some instinct in me, although I. Well, virtually all art. Uh, some instinct in me suggests that this is a possibility open to painting, and I I, I sort of follow that instinct. Music. Yeah. I mean, if it isn't programmed music by Berlioz or somebody like that, um, you know, very difficult for me to take too seriously the notion that music is saying something. It's right. I always tell students it would be the wrong question to ask, having heard a song. You know, what did it mean? Or, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly that dimension to music which can be uh, explicated with interesting profundity, but uh, but to me, that's not the main thrust of music. Right. Um, and so on, you know, and I sort of you can go through the other arts and and uh, no, I I think that uh, literature is not necessarily the most important among the arts. I wouldn't want to get involved in that nineteenth century <laughs> debate. No, we don't need to. <laughs> but um, I do think that it is it is the most um, expressive of uh, human doings and longings yeah. uh, among the arts. Because it, it, it happens to, to sort of share as its fundamental tool the thing that we all go on using every day of our lives, whether we're writers or not, namely language. Um, um, well, um, you know, like I said, Paul, I was, I was really um, wanting all along to have you on this podcast. I wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing before I asked you to join it. And um, I'm so glad that you were here. Um, and um, I th- and I think maybe just by way of um, conclusion, I can ask you to read the poem uh, "Slumber Did My Spirit Seal" one more time. Sure. A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees, rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. Well, that's Paul Fry um, reading Wordsworth for us. What a treat. Um, Paul, thanks again. Listeners, thank you so much for um, joining us for this conversation. It was a real honor for me. It made me feel better today. <laughs> <laughs> Consolation enough. Um, all right, Paul, um, I, I, I want to thank you again, and I'm wishing everyone um, out there um, uh, good health, and we'll talk again soon. Bye now, everyone.